Welcome back to the Rules Plus podcast. In the last episode, I finished a thorough consideration of the sibling rules dyad free kicks versus scrimmage kicks, highlighting parallels and differences between them and speculating about why those differences may have come about. In this episode, I'm going to focus on scrimmage kicks, which I've already inferred are more integral to the strategy of the game than are free kicks because their purpose is to flip field position or score points, not simply to provide a transition mechanism to begin play or resume play after halftime or a score as free kicks do. I've identified two dyads of interest regarding scrimmage kicks, which is what I'll cover today. First, there is the pair of place kick plays intended to score points, namely a field goal attempt versus a try for point attempt after a touchdown. And then second, there is the special case when a field goal attempt is unsuccessful, creating the pair of a failed field goal attempt versus a punt. So let's get started. I'm going to consider five elements for comparison. One, definitions concerning field goal down versus try down. Two, when the down begins and the relationship to dead ball fouls for, again, a field goal versus a try. Three, live ball fouls by either team or by both teams for a field goal versus a try. Four, I am going to digress to talk about fouls during a touchdown in general. I hope you'll see why. And five, definitions. Failed field goal down versus a punt down. So beginning with number one, definitions, a field goal down versus a try down. To the eye, a field goal attempt is identical to a try attempt because both plays are place kicks except in the exceedingly rare circumstance when a player attempts a drop kick. The essential elements of a place kick are that, and this is in 2.16.4, it is attempted by a player of the team in possession, the ball is controlled on the ground by a teammate, and the ball may be positioned on a tee. The essential elements of a drop kick are that, and this is in 2.16.3, a player drops the ball, and then a player kicks it as it touches the ground. A field goal attempt is a scrimmage kick that may be a place kick or a drop kick to 16-9. A try attempt is what would be a field goal attempt under rules governing play at other times, 8-3-1, except that its value is specified as one point, 8-1-1. A try is further clarified as, quote, an opportunity for either team to score one or two points while the game clock is stopped after a touchdown or in the third or subsequent extra period or periods, end quote. That phrasing is in 8-3-2. Isn't it interesting the language of the rule characterizes a try as an opportunity for either team to score. We know that's true, but the phrasing suggests that a try is an equal opportunity event, that a score by team B is not so much a failure by team A 
and a bonus for Team B, but rather a seizing of an opportunity by Team B. It's as if the Rules Committee is spinning a try as a favor granted to Team B for conceding a touchdown to Team A. Imagine that. I mention this wording peculiarity not because it has any special practical impact on our officiating, but because it is such a disarmingly quaint way to say this. Concerning practical impact, however, these definitions do introduce subtle differences in providing for when a field goal and a try down begin. Element two, when the down begins and dead ball fouls for field goal versus try. A down is a, quote, unit of the game that starts after the ball is ready for play with a legal snap, scrimmage down, or legal free kick, free kick down, and ends when the ball becomes dead. Exception. The try is a scrimmage down that begins when the referee declares the ball ready for play. Reference to 832B. End quote. This wording is from 271. The wording here I find ambiguous because there appears in both the statement of the definition and in the exception roughly identical phrasing, essentially ball ready for play. What's the difference between the, quote, ball is ready for play, end quote, and the, quote, referee declares the ball ready for play, end quote? You have to be aware of two other rules to realize that the first phrase essentially means the ball is ready for play when it's legally snapped, and the second phrase means it's ready earlier than that, namely when the referee says so. Confused? Perhaps I can help. Rule four spells out when a dead ball becomes alive. Quote, after a dead ball is ready for play, it becomes a live ball when it is legally snapped or legally free kicked. End quote. Combining that with the wording in 271, it's clear that a down begins when the ball is snapped. Until that moment, the location of the ball remains, by definition, the succeeding spot. Rule 225.3 confirms this. Quote, the succeeding spot is the point at which the ball is next to be put in play. End quote. The relevance of the exception to 271 now becomes clear. In the normal course of the game, a down doesn't start when the referee indicates the ball is ready for play. So, a field goal attempt begins at the snap. However, when a try-down is imminent, the try-down begins with the referee's signal. With implications when dead ball fouls occur after a touchdown, but before the snap for a try-down. In 8.3.2b, the try, indeed, is clarified as being, quote, a special interval in the game which, for purposes of penalty enforcement only, includes both the down and the ready period that precedes it. End quote. 
The practical implication here is that the referee's ready signal provides a reference point for determining whether a team has an option for a dead ball foul to be enforced, either at the succeeding spot or on the try. Once the referee has given the ready signal, an option no longer exists. Any foul during that ready period must be enforced on the try only. So, for example, if there's a dead ball personal foul by either team, the timing matters. If the foul or fouls occur between the time the touchdown is scored and the referee's ready to play signal, the offended team has an option to enforce on the try or subsequent kickoff. If the foul or fouls occur after the ready signal, enforcement is only possible on the try. No option involved. Element three, live ball fouls by either team or by both, again, for a field goal versus a try. So we've seen that for dead ball fouls after a touchdown, it's important to know that the try down presents a unique case, different from during a field goal attempt, concerning when the try down begins. Are there similar unique wrinkles for try downs concerning live ball fouls? If there is no change of possession during a try down and the try is successful, fouls by either team are handled largely as they would be during a regular down. The principal difference from a field goal attempt is to keep in mind where the ball will be set up for the replay of the down or for the subsequent kickoff. Live ball fouls by Team B. If the try is successful, Team A has the option to decline the score and repeat the try after penalty enforcement or accept the score by declining a 10 or 5-yard foul or accepting a 15-yard foul with enforcement on the kickoff or at the succeeding spot in extra periods. If Team A has scored a two-point touchdown, it will clearly decline or accept the kickoff enforcement. If the try is not successful, Team A has the option to repeat the down, as it would on any field goal play. Note that, unlike during regulation play, a repeat of the try down after a foul by Team B may be from any point on or between the hash marks on or behind the yard line where the penalty leaves the ball. That's in 8-3-3-B-2. There is no such option for the replay of a field goal attempt or if Team A would be awarded a first down after penalty enforcement during regular play. Live ball fouls by Team A. If the try is successful, the ball is put in play at the spot where the penalty leaves it. If the penalty includes a loss of down, the score is canceled and the try is over. If Team A commits a live ball foul treated as a dead ball foul, for example, game administration or sideline interference covered in 924, the score would count and enforcement would be on the kickoff or at the succeeding spot in extra periods. If the try is unsuccessful and 
teammate commits a live ball foul treated as a dead ball foul. For example, again, game administration or sideline interference, the try is over and enforcement would be on the kickoff or at the succeeding spot in extra periods. What about fouls by both teams during a try down with a change of team possession? It is in this situation that you'll find the biggest difference between field goal downs and try downs. During a try down, if the fouls are after a change of possession, they are declined by rule, except for flagrant personal fouls, unsportsmanlike conduct fouls, and live ball fouls treated as dead ball fouls, all of which are enforced at the succeeding kickoff or the succeeding spot in extra periods. A score by a team committing a foul is canceled. If both teams' fouls occurred before the change of possession, they offset and the down is replayed. If only Team A's foul occurred before the change of possession, the fouls cancel and the try is over, with the usual exceptions. You can find this in 8-3-4. Fouls by the non-scoring team during a try down with a two-point touchdown. Here is another major difference from a field goal down. During a try down, the provision in 10-2-5 to penalize 15-yard fouls by the non-scoring team during a down that ends in a touchdown is explicitly indicated as not applicable, regardless of which team scores the two-point touchdown. Here is where I am going to engage in a digression to talk about, in general cases, fouls during a touchdown. It's possible that many of you may not be altogether familiar with the rule regarding enforcing personal fouls and unsportsmanlike conduct fouls by the non-scoring team during a down that ends with a touchdown. It's a situation that we don't often see, so we're susceptible to handling such situations improperly. So bear with me as I digress a bit from the main discussion here and review what should happen if this situation arises during a regular scoring down. We tend to think of this situation as involving a foul by Team B, because of course, most touchdowns we see are by Team A. So it is easy to forget to enforce the penalty for 15-yard fouls and simply decline the penalty when the foul is by Team A during Team B's running play that results in a touchdown. Here are two plausible scenarios. Perhaps, one, Team A clips during its running play that results in a fumble recovered by Team B. Or, perhaps, two, Team A commits a face mask foul against the Team B runner as he returns the fumble for a touchdown. In both scenarios, the penalty for Team A's foul could be enforced on the ensuing kickoff by Team A. I think we're particularly susceptible to getting it wrong in scenario number one, 
when the foul occurs before the change of possession and not during the running play that produced the touchdown. But in fact, Team A's clipping foul can and should be enforced, even though the clipping foul had nothing to do with the touchdown portion of the down. We know this because there is an inconspicuous exception in Rule 5 to the general principle that if the penalty is accepted for a foul by the team in possession at the time of the foul, the ball belongs to that team. The principle is based on two articles. The clear provision in 523 concerning fouls before a change of possession is that, quote, if a penalty is accepted for a foul that occurs between the goal lines before a change of possession during a down, the ball belongs to team A, end quote. Four exceptions, however, are listed. During a try down, 833B1, when there's post-scrimmage kick enforcement, 10-2-3. Fouls by Team A during a kick, 10-2-4. And fouls by the non-scoring team during a down that ends with a touchdown, 10-2-5. The clear provision in 5-2-4 concerning fouls after a change of possession is that, quote, if a penalty is accepted for a foul that occurs during a down after a change of possession, the ball belongs to the team in possession when the foul occurred, end quote. Here too, however, in bold type is the obscure exception, a reference to rule 10.25a, the subject of this digression. The Reading Study Guide has an example and discussion that further confirm enforcing the clipping foul in scenario number one. Here's my paraphrase of the example, which is number 3-5 on page 7, if you have that study guide. Team A has an illegal touch of a kickoff, after which Team B gains possession, runs a few yards, then fumbles the ball to Team A. Team A does not score. During Team B's running play, it committed a clipping foul. The ruling is that Team A will accept the penalty in order to negate Team B's privilege to take the ball at the spot of Team A's illegal touch. The price is that Team B will keep the ball and have a first down to start its possession series, albeit at a spot less advantageous than the spot of the illegal touching violation would have left it. Okay, that's the example. So what does this example have to do with the present discussion? There are two points to be made here. First, Team A could not have kept the ball in this circumstance. Either Team B would have taken the ball at the spot of Team A's touching violation, or at the spot where the penalty left the ball. Second, things could be different if Team A had returned the fumble for a touchdown, depending on the foul that was committed. 
Here's the Reading Study Guide's explanation. If Team B commits a personal or unsportsmanlike conduct foul, then the exception in 524 applies. The touchdown stands and Team A may accept the penalty, thereby canceling the illegal touching. The penalty will be enforced on the try, the succeeding kickoff, or the succeeding spot in an extra period. And again, this is on page 7. The moral of the story should be clear. Even though Team B's foul didn't occur during Team A's touchdown running play, the penalty may be enforced under the provision of 10-5A. In fact, Team A must accept the penalty to negate Team B's privilege to take the ball at the spot of the violation. The rationale for Rule 10.2.5 and the exceptions in 5.2.3 and 5.2.4 that are necessary to allow its provisions to override the otherwise prime principle of a team in possession keeping the ball if a foul occurs during that possession would seem to be to punish careless actions or cheap shots during touchdown scoring downs. Yet, as in scenario number one, at the time Team A committed a clipping foul, no one knew the play was going to result in a touchdown by anyone. Yet, the foul may be penalized even on top of the hardship for Team A in conceding a touchdown. If that seems harsh, I agree. So perhaps the ultimate rationale for having Rule 10.2.5 is the laudable quest for player safety. It's hard to stomach waving off a very dangerous foul such as clipping. So, at least in the case where a touchdown is the result of the play, there can be a mechanism for making it attractive to the offended team to accept the penalty. After all, the rule does not include 10- and 5-yard fouls for carryover, providing additional evidence that the rationale targets serious fouls that present imminent threats to player safety. Speaking of those 10- and 5-yard fouls that do not carry over, I can't conclude this discussion without sharing two very interesting approved rulings that are instructive in not moving too quickly to ignore such fouls in situations involving illegal touching violations during a kickdown. To remind you, the provision in 10.25A1 concerning fouls with 10- or 5-yard penalties is that they, quote, are not enforced on the try or the succeeding kickoff, end quote. But that doesn't mean that they are not enforced at all. The next sentence in 10.2.5a1 is easy to overlook. It adds another obscure exception. Such fouls are, quote, declined by rule, end quote, except if enforcement of a 10 or 5-yard foul is made possible by illegal touching of a kick during the down that ends in a touchdown. How can this happen, you ask? Well, it can happen more easily than you think. If the touchdown during the down was scored after a change or multiple changes 
of possession, a circumstance that we tend to overlook because it happens only occasionally. The two approved rulings I'm about to share illustrate plausible scenarios when there's a holding foul against team B after a change of possession and there has been an illegal touching violation by team A during the kick play portion of the down. In the first scenario, the hold is during a running play by team B. In the second scenario, the hold is during a subsequent running play by team A. The scenarios involve punts, but they could just as easily involve unsuccessful field goal attempts. Approved ruling 632 number three, holding foul after change of possession declined by rule. Quote, Team A's punt goes beyond the neutral zone and is first touched by A80, then picked up by B40, who runs five yards and fumbles. A20 picks up the fumble and scores. During A20's run, B70 holds. Ruling. The score does not count. Five and ten yard penalties are not administered on the try or the succeeding kickoff. The penalty for Team B's foul is declined by rule because there is no enforcement spot. The ball belongs to Team B at the spot of illegal touching. The reference is to Rule 10.25A2. End quote. Approved Ruling 632, Number 4. Holding foul after change of possession accepted. Quote. Team A's punt goes beyond the neutral zone and is first touched by A80, then picked up by B40, who runs five yards and fumbles. B70 holds during B40's run. A20 picks up the fumble and scores. Ruling. The score does not count. Five and ten-yard penalties are not administered on the try or the succeeding kickoff. Because the illegal touching provides an enforcement spot, the penalty for Team B's foul may be enforced per Rule 524. The ball belongs to Team B either at the spot of illegal touching, if Team A declines the penalty, or at the spot after the enforcement of Team A accepting the penalty. Reference to Rules 10.2.2 and 10.2.5.A.2. End quote. In both scenarios, Team B has fouled, yet Team A's score will not count and Team B will end up with the ball. At least in the second scenario, the Team A coach has a penalty to accept. Nevertheless, you're going to have a quite of a bit of a challenge in explaining to him what has just happened. Okay, returning to the topic at hand, element five, failed field goal down versus a punt down. I've been referring to rules dyads as siblings, but the relationship between field goal attempts and punts is even closer, perhaps akin to, say, fraternal twins. Both kinds of kicks are scrimmage kicks because, well, 
They clearly aren't free kicks. But a field goal attempt is essentially a special case of a scrimmage kick for four reasons. It is almost always these days a place kick. It is intended to score points. It may not be a punt if Team A intends to score points. And special rules apply to where Team B will next put the ball in play if the kick is unsuccessful and Team B does not touch the kick beyond the neutral zone. However, both kick plays do begin with a snap. Both may include a drop kick. Both are governed by different rules if the ball doesn't cross the neutral zone. And after both, Team B will next put the ball in play if the ball has crossed the neutral zone and there is no change of possession during the down. Downs that include a successful field goal are, of course, scoring downs. So the rules governing penalty enforcement and who next puts the ball in play are different than those otherwise governing scrimmage kick downs. So what's of interest to this discussion is unsuccessful field goal attempts. We know that post-scrimmage kick enforcement does not apply to a successful field goal attempt, a try, or a down in extra periods. PSK enforcement and all rules pertaining to scrimmage kicks may apply to an unsuccessful field goal attempt, but only in three cases. One, the ball fails to cross the neutral zone. Two, Team B touches the ball after it has crossed the neutral zone. Or three, the ball crosses the neutral zone, is untouched by Team B beyond the neutral zone, and nevertheless is declared dead behind the neutral zone. These are covered in 842B2 and 3. Otherwise, the special provisions for ball placement for Team B's series apply. 842B1. Fouls during a scrimmage kick play are enforced from three possible spots. The previous spot, the post-scrimmage kick spot as a basic spot, or possibly the spot where the dead ball belongs to Team B as an option for Team B after Team A fouls. There is, of course, more that could be said about this topic, but this is enough for one episode. Except... I must add one more important point that can't be made too often. Avoid subscribing to the stubborn, enduring myth I've heard my entire career. It goes like this. If the ball doesn't cross the neutral zone, it isn't a kick. Well, let me tell you, a ball struck intentionally by a player's lower leg or foot is always a kick. Perhaps legal, perhaps not. If a legal place kick, punt, or drop kick fails to cross the neutral zone, it is simply a kick that has failed to cross the neutral zone. There are only four types of plays in football. Running plays, free kick plays, scrimmage kick plays, and forward pass plays. Whether the ball is loose from a kick crosses the neutral zone is important, but not because that fact has any impact at all on what kind of play has occurred. 
That's my rant for the week. Here's my hope for the week. I hope you're becoming a regular listener to this podcast because you're hearing topics that make you feel more confident every evening that you take the field. I can tell you that my research for each episode is helping me stay current and is sometimes reminding me to pay attention to obscure provisions such as those we've encountered in this episode. I also hope you'll be inspired to learn more about the Austin Football Officials Association. You can email us at recruiting at afoa.ws, visit our website at www.austinfootballofficials.org, or call us at 512-298-2987. Till next time, have a great week.